0: Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty.
1: Aren't native plants weeds? (laughs) That's probably the most common question I am asked.
0: Yeah, and there's always so much happening on a goldenrod. You just walk by and you could cover your eyes and hear all kinds of buzzing because... There are so many insects coming and going. Mm -hmm.
1: These mining bees are so gentle Mm -hmm. that the kids actually named them tickle bees.
0: Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And
1: I'm Sophia.
0: And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers.
2: This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches
1: to teaching green. In this episode... You know, when you think about our rural areas, agricultural areas in particular, there's often not a whole lot of biodiversity in terms of the plants growing in an agricultural area. I mean, our agriculture system is kind of based on monocultural crops and huge distances. Mm -hmm. So for bees, cities can actually be places of incredible floral diversity and floral diversity can mean, you know, that different species of
2: The rusty-patched bumblebee was once common and widespread across North America, but its population has shrunk by at least 99% over the past 30 years. This now emblematic species features prominently in Lorraine Johnson, Sheila Cola, and Anne Sanderson's book, A Garden for the Rusty-Patched Bumblebee, and its recently released US edition, A Northern Gardener's Guide to Native Plants and Pollinators. Lorraine joined Ian to discuss habitat regeneration, the importance of wild native bees, and why urban areas can be pollinator havens.
0: A garden for the rusty patched bumblebee, which I have right beside me here. It is about creating habitat for native pollinators. That also happens to be the subtitle. So there's a lot of bees to choose from, yet you've sort of chosen the rusty patched bumblebee as an emblem for this book. And I wanted to start by digging into why this particular species is so symbolic or emblematic.
1: Well, I have to admit that I just, one, think it's a really cute bee. It's got a cute name. But the more important reason is that I think it's a real cautionary tale, Mm. the story of the rusty patch bumblebee. And my co-author, Sheila Kola, is a rusty patch bumblebee specialist. She's done a lot of work documenting its decline in Canada specifically. She was the last person to see that, identify that bee in the wild in Canada. Now, why it's a cautionary tale is that when I was growing up, so in the 60s and 70s, it was one of the most common bees I would have seen As a young person, and in the last couple of decades, it's completely disappeared from Canada. It's been extirpated, and its extent in the U.S. has also been drastically reduced. So that a common bee can become, you know, can disappear under people's noses without there being an alarm sounded at the time. You know, it was discovered after it had been extirpated. So I think that's a really cautionary tale, and it really reminds us that we need to pay attention. We need to find out why there are these declines for some species, and we really have to take action. Those are some of the reasons, but really it's also a very cute bee. Those are some of the reasons why we talk about the rusty patch bumblebee in the book and have it as an emblematic species really pointing to bigger issues That extend to all pollinators.
0: Right and one of those issues of course is just loss of habitat particularly native plants and the book which I devoured very quickly is largely a book about native plants and the various species associations that go along with that. What are your particular goals for the book and I know you've got the new edition coming out and we'll talk about that a little bit later but when you set out to write this book with Sheila what were you hoping people would get out of it?
1: We had a a couple of different goals. One, we really wanted to share the best possible available science around pollinators, around supporting pollinators, around reasons for pollinator decline, around what individuals can do to support pollinators. There are a lot of, I guess, misconceptions out there. There's a lot of, I guess there's a lot of opportunity to share some basic information about pollinators. and we wanted to do it in in, in an engaging way, you know, without jargon <laughs> in a readily accessible way, but we wanted it to be, you know, very much grounded in the science. And Sheila is a conservation biologist. So she is the 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 bee specialist and it, and it is based on sharing that basic information and then inspiring people. In terms of what individuals can do, in terms of restoring habitat and all of the places that we might have, all of the land we might steward, all of the places where we might have some measure of control over what can be planted what can be grown how how a space can be maintained wherever we are whether it's you know a yard a balcony a community space a community garden so we really wanted to inspire people to take action and then we wanted the book to provide very practical tools for regenerating habitat for pollinators so those were some of our goals
0: And I would say mission accomplished. Maybe I'm biased because I just love these kinds of books in general. And I have uh, one of your other books, 100 Easy to Grow Native Plants. But I do believe, in my humble opinion, mission accomplished.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You talked about misconceptions and opportunities, and we will definitely get to those. But I want to circle back to another word that you mentioned, regenerate, or just this concept of regeneration. And we're hearing a bit more about this alongside sustainability. And for a while there, it seemed like sustainability was the word when we talked about protecting nature. And now regeneration is sort of inching its way closer to the front of the line. Personally, I think that's a very positive thing. Why do you think that's important that regeneration is now working its way strongly into the lexicon around conservation?
1: Mm, That's a great question, and and I've noticed the shifts as well, actually, just from, as you say, I I recall when sustainability was the buzzword, Mm -hmm. and then it caught on, and now regeneration, what what I love about that term is that it incorporates, in a way that I think sustainability does not, regeneration incorporates the idea of, you know, actually restoring health moving beyond where we are now in terms of you know we're in a biodiversity crisis so that's not a position we want to sustain we actually want to regenerate ecosystem health and that i don't know i think that's the kind of attitude that's the approach that's going to move us forward in a in a good way
0: yeah i heard it described in the sense that we're already below the waterline and Mm -hmm. we need to sort of get back to square one. And that's where the regeneration comes into play. And of course, what is square one? You could debate that till the cows come home. But we do have certain benchmarks like the 30 by 30 that just came out of the COP15 conference in Montreal. And I know there's still a lot of work to be done to reach those targets, but there is a lot of momentum starting to bubble up. And a lot of that, I think is because of the work that you're doing, the work that people like Paul Hawken are doing, Douglas Talamy and his wonderful books, which I know you mentioned in the Rusty Patch Bumblebee book. So it, it's out there if you look for it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think one of our the challenges of our time is actually trying to inspire people to see our roles as humans in terms of a a responsibility to regeneration, but a responsibility that can be quite joyous. And, you know, it's not this idea of a heavy burden. It's, for me anyway, it's the idea of, you know, we're connected with all life. We have responsibilities to all life that are, you know, those responsibilities can be joyous and amazing because expressing care is a fundamentally positive and joyous Way to engage with other people for sure and all beings, other life.
0: It is. And with gardening specifically and regenerating habitats full of native plants, you're surrounded by color. Things are changing throughout the growing season. You've got colorful and differently shaped pollinators coming and going. I mean, it really is like a party. As you say, it's truly joyous.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I think. Gardening or regenerating habitat or, you know, engaging with the life of plants is such a great entry point into bigger issues for people. I've always thought of gardening as a as a kind of conversation we have with the world. And I think it's just a really great place to develop an ethic of care and that kind of ethic of responsibility. And also an ethic of action. It's a joyous activity and it can be done in a way that is really positive and creating, regenerating health in systems that are really under stress and will only get under more stress with climate change so i think gardening is a great way in for people and i guess that's one of the reasons why i've focused so much of my work over the last many decades really focused on on this idea of habitat regeneration
0: yeah
2: talking with green teachers is produced by green teacher a registered charity in canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. The rusty-patched bumblebees feed on many different types of flowers, most notably milkweeds, goldenrods, and sunflowers. All showy, mid- and late-summer species in Eastern North America.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the questions you get. I mean, you're in the garden a lot, You're working with people doing a lot of this work. And I'm sure you've been asked many questions, particularly by folks who are maybe new to this. And in outdoor and environmental education, so much of our work is grounded in this inquiry-based model where you're led by the questions of learners of of any age, but we do a lot of work with kids. Mm -hmm. What are some of the more common questions you get, particularly from people who are maybe doing this work for the first time?
1: Mm, I Get a lot of questions actually about honeybees because I think when people hear the word bees, a lot of us tend to think of honeybees because that's mainly what we hear about. So, one of the most common questions I get has to do with honeybees, and it's an opportunity to talk with people about the incredible diversity. Of bees that, that go way beyond honeybees, and to talk about how honeybees are actually an introduced kind of managed species. It's like an agricultural crop in a way, yeah. very similar, managed in, in agricultural ways. And whereas there's this incredible diversity of wild bees. To introduce people to and to introduce them to the specificity, you know, the incredible differences among all of these different um, types and species of wild bees, and try to really build enthusiasm and show people. Also, I find that, you know, because there is this focus on honeybees, people tend to assume, hey, all bees are. Black and yellow. (laughs) And you get to introduce people to, no, no, there are bees that are, you know, the most iridescent green. There are blue bees, you know, and just again, that really opens people's eyes up to some of the diversity. I also get a lot of questions about who are some of the other pollinators. Yeah. And that's a great, yeah, that's a great opportunity to introduce people to the idea of really valuing and, you know, acknowledging the incredible role and the gift of pollination that insects like moths or beetles or wasps even, that um, these are also very important pollinators. And in some cases, like with the wasps, actually, the incredible diversity of wasps, most of us kind of maybe see the the wasps that gather around our picnics and sugary drinks at the end of the summer, and we're not even aware of all of the incredibly secretive wasps who tend to hide from humans, but are important pollinators as well.
0: I think Heather Holm has done just a masterful job of alerting people to just the absolute wonder of wasps, and her book about wasps, it came out maybe a year or two ago, it's like a textbook. And uh, I'm sure you've seen it. The photos are just completely unbelievable. <laughs>
1: yeah, I have just the utmost respect and appreciation for everything that Heather Holm does. Her books, she's written a number of books about bees and native plants. And as you say, her book on wasps, it's a masterpiece. It's so inspiring. And wasps are a great example of this. I think the more we learn about them, the less afraid we will be, the less sort of negatively judgmental. Mm. And so I think the work that she does, that Heather Holm does, can really help us kind of open our, it can really open our eyes to the, you know, the amazing world of insects and how crucial they are. And as humans, really make peace with them and value them and support them because they They support all life on Earth.
0: They really do, and I think a lot more people are aware of just the unbelievable declines in insect numbers that we've seen through various studies, and Dave Golson's book Silent Earth from 2021 detailed that, but also offered solutions that, you know, I always appreciate when authors talk about the problems but offer solutions alongside that, and I think he's done a really good job of alerting people to insect declines, and what are the implications of that?
1: yeah because it is terrifying <laughs> the implications are so vast it's almost impossible to even contemplate really when you think about the fact that about 90% of all flowering plants on earth depend on on pollinators and if you could imagine life on it's impossible to imagine life as we know it on earth without Flowering plants. Everything. Everything right up the food chain depends. Not only humans, but life on Earth. So pollinators very crucial. There's no other way to put it. Crucial to life on Earth, and so the declines in in a number of species and sort of across the board really are a huge concern. And one of the things that we're really trying to do with this book is, okay, there are these declines in a number of species, there are some really terrifying, you know, trends. So what are we going to do about it? And there are lots of things at all levels that we need to do. We as a species, as humans, there's lots we need to do at, at every, in every sphere, all, you know, levels of action. In our book, we focus on what we can do to create habitat for pollinators because they're facing, as you mentioned, you know, habitat fragmentation, climate change, introduced diseases from honeybees and managed bees. There, there's so many issues that are facing bees in particular, but many different types of pollinators. So. We've got to take action, and and this book is a call to action.
0: And we'll get into more of the actions that people can take, particularly in rural and urban areas, in the next section. But just quickly, we talked about questions related to bees, and you often get asked about honeybees, which are introduced in North America. What are some common questions you get about plants?
1: Well, you know, I'm very sorry to say, and it really causes me pain all the time, That I am asked constantly aren't native plants weeds? (laughs) That's probably the most common question I am asked, and it breaks my heart. And it's a huge concern. Because of course, and I'm sure we'll get into it, of these crucial relationships between native plants and native insects and how they depend on each other and how they support each other. And so, if people are thinking that native plants are weeds, then they're not going to be likely to plant them. And that's disastrous. What's interesting about that question, though, is when I dig deeper and ask people, hey, why do you? think native plants are weeds. What plants are you calling weeds? What plants cause you problems in what you're trying to achieve in your garden? What plants do you consider weeds? It is inevitable that the species that people list are actually non-native plants, like dandelions, creeping charlie, you know, and on and on with, with introduced plants. So kind of somehow severing that association between native plants and the whole concept of weeds, I really see that as as one of my missions, actually, to really like try to end that association. Because, I mean, we could talk for a long time about the kind of philosophical issues ra- raised by the whole category called weeds. But um, anyway, that is one of the most common questions I am asked, particularly about native plants.
0: Yeah. And I've certainly had many questions like that. And then somewhat related to that is a lot of people think goldenrod is what (gasps) gives them hay fever and (laughs) poor old goldenrod. And I should say goldenrods, I mean, many different species and identifying among the different ones I find really interesting. And in our area, of course, there's zigzag goldenrod, which I think is just one of the most beautiful herbaceous forest floor plants Mm -hmm. in late summer. I, I just think it's spectacular. And a lot of people don't even know that there are different types of goldenrods, let alone the fact that their pollen is too heavy and sticky to be causing these allergic reactions that ragweed causes. (laughs) That's a pet peeve of mine.
1: I share that pet peeve and actually uh, I wrote a, a fact sheet that's available. I co-wrote it with Ryan Godfrey of World Wildlife Fund and it's and it's on the it's on the City of Toronto websites and it's called Get to Know Golden Rod. And it is all about all of this the issues that you just raised, you know, and really trying to share love for goldenrod and encourage love for goldenrod I think that the pharmaceutical companies that uh, create those products for hay fever suffers they're responsible for a lot of misinformation over the years because oh, yeah. they always showed an image of goldenrod when it's ragweed that's that that causes hay
0: fever yeah poor old goldenrod will <laughs> i I am alongside you in this mission to <laughs> Give goldenrod its good name back.
1: (laughs) Well, especially since, you know, when we're talking about these relationships between native plants and pollinators, goldenrods are some of the most supportive plants for pollinators. Whether those are pollen specialist bees or Lepidoptera, like the butterflies and moths in their caterpillar stages, goldenrods are incredibly valuable plants for pollinators so along with just being an issue of clarity you know wait it's not a weed you know it's it's a very important plant for pollinators and you know we should love it and value it for so many reasons along with the fact that it's beautiful and it's really only convention that somehow leads us to say oh this isn't a garden worthy plant when when it is.
0: Yeah, and there's always so much happening on a goldenrod. You just walk by and you could cover your eyes and hear all kinds of buzzing because there are so many insects coming and going. Mm -hmm. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just here to let you know about two of our newest books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one is kind of like an educator's toolbox with ready to use hands on lessons focused on four core dimensions of climate change. Visit greenteacher.com to get your copies. We also have special rates available for bulk orders, and all proceeds go back into the nonprofit.
2: Because of their especially short tongue, the rusty patched must sometimes nectar rob flowers, which involves piercing a hole at the back of the flower to reach its nectar and pollen.
0: So you're based in Toronto, which is Canada's largest city, one of the biggest in North America. Some people might think, well, there's only so much you can do in an urban area, my guess is that you would probably beg to differ. And based on the photos in the book of your yard, (laughs) I would imagine you probably can speak to many opportunities in urban areas for regeneration. So I'll let you expand on that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I find it interesting that you know, in so many ways, we think of cities as lost causes Mm -hmm. ecologically, or there's at least a strong tradition. And luckily, that's changing. I think it's a really good sign that that attitude is changing. But for a long time, traditionally, cities were presented as places where you didn't do things like grow food, for example. But we know that urban agriculture has such profound benefits in ecological ways, in, in human health ways, and, you know, just so many benefits. It's the same with, you know, the idea of creating habitat in the city. Cities are not lost causes. they are incredible opportunities everywhere. And if you think about, let's say, the flying distance of some of these, well, bees, we talk about bees, but we could also talk about other insects, with these small distances that they might Fly or travel in their lifetime, the sort of habitat we either create for them or regenerate for them or protect for them is crucial. Another thing about cities is that, you know, when you think about our rural areas, agricultural areas in particular, there's often not a whole lot of biodiversity in terms of the plants growing in an agricultural area. I mean, our agriculture system is kind of based on monocultural crops and huge distances. Mm -hmm. So for bees, cities can actually be places of incredible floral diversity. And floral diversity can mean, you know, that different species of bees are getting what they need in terms of the pollen specialist bees, for example, are getting the pollen they require from the native plants if those plants are in the city. So there's just so much opportunity. And of course, this is where the majority of us live in cities. So in terms of you know, there's something that we talked about at the beginning in terms of really connecting with nature or recon- you could call it reconciling with nature, mm. really feeling that we are a part of nature. The opportunities to nurture that where we live, where the majority of us live, which is in urban areas, cities are great places and important places to do this work. Of regenerating habitat for pollinators. And it can lead to so much more in terms of, you know, when we when we see the results of doing this work, when we see the bees and the birds and the butterflies that visit and that that help build a a, a really profound connection with nature, then we might might be more inclined to protect nature.
0: And you'll certainly get no disagreement from me on that, and I would imagine from our listeners. One of my favorite sites in Toronto and for those who are unfamiliar with it, it's a place called Evergreen Brickworks and it used to be an old brick factory and it's been turned into this natural space through a series of regenerative initiatives, one of which is a living green wall that represents the major watersheds, the major rivers in Toronto. And that is one of my favorite places in the entirety of the city of Toronto.
1: Yeah, I love that wall you're talking about, and in, in the way that it makes visible, and I think this is another aspect of regenerating habitat in cities, making visible the natural processes on which we all depend and all life depends, that can have so many spin-off benefits. And the watershed wall at the Brickworks is one really good example of that. It reminds us that water is life, and that we You know, it it reminds us of where we are within watersheds and where our water goes and where our water, you know, that we drink, where it comes from, where the water that all creatures depend on, you know, how it flows. And that might help encourage us to treat it with the care that it, you know. I don't even want to use those words like deserves or requires. I I don't like where that sentence was going, but the idea that we can give it the care that will nurture the life of that water.
0: Yeah. Do you see momentum in terms of these green walls and rooftop gardens? I mean, Richard Louv was writing about this 10 or more years ago, and of course loads of other people have been doing this work. Do you see that more and more people are engaging with the higher up places for growing pollinating plants?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, I just think in general, there's just so much more interest for sure in habitat restoration, in in native plant gardens, in pollinator gardens, and people are finding really creative ways to engage with that work. And whether it's on a balcony, on a rooftop, on a patio, on a porch, in a community garden, tucked in between food plants, wherever. I've witnessed an explosion of interest, and that is amazing to see.
0: Yeah, it's great to hear. Getting back to rural areas, and particularly where we are, southern Ontario, especially in southwestern Ontario, which is a big part of the agricultural belt of Ontario, there are so many fields that are Just soy or just canola, et cetera, et cetera. What can people do in rural areas where that is the reality, at least for the foreseeable future, where you have these big fields of monocultures? How can we still create some habitat for pollinators?
1: Oh, well, you know, it's certainly possible in rural areas in the same way it's, you know, has all the benefits in urban areas as well. So, around wherever it is, people are living in rural areas, whether the nearest house is, you know, a mile away or 500 meters away or whatever, restoring habitat around the places we live, or if it's in a rural small community where there are multi dwellings, you know, around those buildings, this work can be done in of restoring habitat anywhere. There are some Particular challenges in rural areas, I would say, in that pesticide use is certainly common in agricultural areas, which causes problems for all kinds of insects, or there's also a lot of competition, I guess. I think it's one of the challenges that makes it just as imperative to do this work in rural areas as well is that there tends to be a lot of competition from the honeybees that are either trucked in to agricultural areas for pollination or that are in, agricultural areas and are competing for resources with a diversity of wild bees or maybe transferring diseases from, from those honeybees to the wild bees. So there are unique um, issues related to habitat restoration in rural areas, but basically any, any area is ripe, ripe for this sort of restoration.
0: They just need to get your book and get to work. <laughs> Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats and... You know what? How about I let my co-host Jade harvey Barrel tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade.
3: Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like Busy Bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So, whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian?
0: Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favourite podcast app.
2: It's not entirely known what has caused such a dramatic decline in rusty patched numbers, but pesticide use and habitat loss are two likely culprits.
0: Well, we often talk about the importance of stories and storytelling principles in learning, and people have been hearing me banging on about this on this podcast, so sorry, not sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, could you share, I know it's hard to just single out one, but could you share at least one pollinator slash native plant story that has particularly special meaning to you?
1: Oh, do I really have to just pick one? You've made it very hard because there are so many. (laughs) One of. Okay. I love a story that my friend Patricia Landry, who works for the City of Toronto and has done a lot of work to promote the protection of pollinators and supporting pollinators, she told me just a story I love. And it has to do with a park where there was a lot of activity with mining bees. And this park was near a playground. And a lot of people who lived around the park were concerned about kids in the playground. And and a a lot of folks think that all bees sting and that that you know there's a lot of fear around bees and stings. I should have said that when you asked the question at the beginning about what's one of the common questions has to do with bee stings. Well, yes. There are so many species, Like the, the majority of bees actually that we encounter here in North America actually don't sting. It's only, well, we could get into detail on that. But suffice it to say, in this, in this story, in this example, so there were mining bees in this park near a playground. People were concerned. They were phoning the city saying, you've got to do something. You've got to, you know, these bees are going to hurt the kids. Well... These mining bees are so gentle Mm -hmm. that the kids actually named them tickle bees because they do. They touch you. They tickle. They don't sting. And the city ended up putting up a sign at the playground about the tickle bees. And it's so amazing the way that naming and learning and understanding can really create this completely different way of looking at something. So what went from a problem and a fear and a get rid of it turned into a celebration and a learning and an understanding and an engagement and a really great story about kids learning to love bees. And a really, I mean, I know our, our conversation has focused a little bit on uh, you know cute things but I think (laughs) the idea of tickle bees I mean the names we use are so important and right off the bat that like encourages an engagement that is full of positive value so I love that story and just thought it was wonderful when I heard it from Patricia Landry
0: yeah that's a great one It's also a great example of sort of meeting kids where they're at. They came up with the name and it's like, hey, let's use it.
1: Yep. And we can, as we know, as we all know, we can learn so much from kids all the time. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, that is a good example. They knew these were tickle bees. They got a kick out of the tickle bees.
0: I'll certainly never forget that name. I mean, when the first ones start to show up in really not, too too long from now, mm-hmm. I'll definitely be paying attention and thinking about the tickle bees. Mm-hmm. Well, any final thoughts before we put a bow on this discussion?
1: Oh I guess um, final thought, I'd really encourage people and i i I know when I talk about planting native plants and restoring habitat and creating these amazing spaces. I tend to assume that everyone's just gonna, you know, start big and go whole hog and do it all. And, and I always have to remind myself. And so my final thought, a final piece of advice is start wherever you're at, like plant one native plant, if that's what your capacity is at this point, for whatever reason, plant it in a pot on your balcony, just you know plant one plant take one small action if that's what you can do start at whatever place is is doable for you and you will get hooked i guarantee it because you'll see the birds and the butterflies and the bees and the all the amazing life that doing this work of restoring habitat you'll see the life that responds immediately
0: there is something just truly magical about a native flower garden buzzing with activity quite literally buzzing with activity Mm -hmm. there's nothing like it
1: yes agreed
0: thank you so much Lorraine I mean there's so much we could continue to get into I mean even just that concept of when we put names on things and Mm. the doors that that opens I mean we could do a whole, whole episode just on that thanks so much it was great to speak with you
2: Fortunately, many jurisdictions in Canada and the United States have legislated the protection of rusty-patched bumblebees. While there's still much work to be done to protect these species, the growing interest in regenerating nature with native plants is sure to help. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnessi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon.
0: Unless they Mm -hmm. get to know tarantulas, and I I think they're quite delightful creatures, personally.
1: Wow, amazing. They're probably a little tickly, too, actually. I bet, yeah.